welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Dan Horner. And Dan will be well known to many of you who read the blog and who are attendees at the Royal College conferences. I've heard them speak. Dan is a member of the St. Emelins team, but this is one of the first time for several years I think we've had you on the podcast, Dan. Probably worth you just introducing yourself, a little bit about you so the listeners know what to expect. I'm uh, Dan Horner. I'm a consultant in intensive care and emergency medicine in the northwest of England. I also have the good fortune to be professor of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine at their present time. And I've got an academic interest in various things, but most people will know me for blood clots. It's not particularly blood clots I thought we'd talk about today, if that's okay. I hoped we could use your experience in both emergency medicine and intensive care for you to just tell our audience, which really is emergency physicians, emergency nurses, paramedics, a little bit about what happens to our coronavirus COVID-19 patients after they leave the department. So if I just give you a scenario, we're, I'm in the research room and I've got a 60-year-old man who's been brought in, probably got coronavirus and has SATs of 75% on high flow oxygen, SATs aren't moving, x-ray changes, classic of coronavirus. I give you a call to, hey, Dan, I think this guy's going to need intensive care, may even need intubation. What is it that actually happens next? Yes, it's a good question, this patient journey, isn't it? And, and I think it probably will continue to vary uh, up and down the country as we learn more about the disease and depending on resource and capacity. I suppose the first thing to do with any kind of clinical scenario like that is to make sure that these patients get the same excellent care that they would always get. All of these patients should be getting a, a good history, physical examination, panel of blood tests, shouldn't they? An ECG. And an arterial blood gas is really helpful in these patients to try and work out how hypoxemic they are on presentation. And then what we've been finding is that a lot of the old stuff, you know, the clinical assessment of work of breathing actually guides the admission decision about where that patient could go. Because a lot of these patients will be happy hypoxemics, won't they? Or silent hypoxemics. I'm sure you've seen them already. People with SATs in the high 80s on room air or even lower who were just sat there say that they don't particularly feel breathless, they don't feel unwell. And then you have to counter that with the people who look tired and sweaty already and look like they're struggling. And obviously the latter need a slightly higher level of care if that's appropriate to start with. You mentioned arterial blood gases. We often at St. Emelins talk about using venous blood gases instead, but I guess this is a time where you really want to know the difference between that inspired oxygen and the amount of oxygen that's getting into the blood. Is it worth at this stage, if you think a patient's going to need critical care, popping an arterial line in? I think that's a very reasonable thing to think about. I suppose it depends on your gestalt as to where that patient needs to be, doesn't it? So, you know, if this is a young patient, there are no caveats at all about ceilings of care and you think that everything possible up to and including ECMO would be appropriate. Someone's looking very unwell and you perceive a need for sequential arterial blood gases in early line is a really sensible thing to do. We found that actually helps you kind of evaluate the response to the first six to 12 hours of therapy. And we are doing a little bit more in terms of, of CPAP for some borderline patients and, a, and an arterial line will help you evaluate exactly how well that's working over the course of the whole day, rather than going back to do sequential blood gases on a poor, unhappy patient. So it sounds like there's still quite a lot to be said for clinical medicine here. You might have some numbers and you might have some results, but actually looking at the patient is of primary importance as you say some people can sit there and not look too bad and others look completely clapped out and the numbers don't always tell the story if we go down the end of the severely affected patient whose sats just won't come up looks really tired and you've got that call from an intensivist perspective what happens next for you it's important to make sure that all of the basics are done well in ED because a lot of the access to imaging and investigations are, are best done in the emergency department before people are whipped off to the third floor or wherever ICU is. When I've been on for referrals, I've been thinking hard about whether these people need chest imaging to try and delineate whether they've got any concurrent pathology like a PE or a, a cavitating bacterial pneumonia. We found a few of those in our sicker patients in addition to the classic COVID changes. 
British uh, Society of Thoracic Imaging guideline about when to CT and when not to, uh, I find that quite helpful. So we make sure that those bits and bobs are done. And then if we think someone is sick enough to need intensive care, we have gone down the path locally of organising a merit team. So that's a, a mobile emergency rapid intubation team, I think it stands for. That's made up of senior anaesthetists and senior ODPs who are actually very good and very reliable at, at coming and collecting those patients from the ED and taking them straight upstairs to a dedicated intubation bay on our intensive care unit, which we've ring-fenced and we've kept available. The benefits of that are familiar environment for those staff. It's routinely stocked and checked, provides a bit of familiarity and reliability, and it, it, it takes the stress out of intubating in a unfamiliar environment. I don't know about your ED, but in mine, we've cleaved ourselves into hot and cold or or clean and dirty or green and blue, you know, whatever you want to call it. And that means that we're actually seeing a lot of these patients in an area that we wouldn't usually see them in. We're uh, trying to preserve resource for some of our other things and we're using other areas. And so when we do need to intubate downstairs, it's quite foreign for everyone. And using the merit team gets rid of all of that because we kind of scoop people upstairs and then we see how they get on. If we think that there's potential for a bridge therapy, then we would usually trial these patients on CPAP initially if, if it's pure hypoxemia. And we use hoods on my unit at the moment and we start with reasonably high CPAP levels. We start on a CPAP of 10 and an FiO2 of, of 0.5 or 0.6, which is what's recommended in the NHS England specialty document, which is a, a useful resource. I don't know if show notes are still a thing. Are they still a thing? Always. Show notes will always be a thing or yeah. even a blog post. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we can link to stuff like that, can't we? Yes. We often try CPAP initially and then we, with CPAP and an arterial line, you know, we can get an idea of what trajectory a patient is taking over the, the first 24 to 48 hours. And in your experience of the patients you've seen, what number of those patients who you're trying to bridge, who you think right now they don't need intubation, what, what proportion of those will get away without being intubated versus those who will go on to need intubation? Is CPAP just a delaying thing or does it truly get people through without needing to be tubed? And the data continues to emerge on this. There's a, been a few ICS knowledge sharing webinars recently through the Intensive Care Society and people have been talking about their different experiences. The anecdotal numbers, I think, suggest that when patients are suitable for escalation and then they have CPAP in a, an environment where they can receive additional treatments if they are failing that therapy very quickly. Uh, from my experience and what I'm hearing, I think it, it sounds like it's about 50-50. So the people who go on to CPAP, some of them will do very well uh, and they will turn a corner and then be stepped down within three to five days of, of intensive care therapy requiring only CPAP. Others become more and more progressively hypoxemic and, and end up requiring mechanical ventilation. And it's really actually very challenging to predict who will pass and who will fail, if you like. I can't help but leap on the phrase turning a corner because I've read a lot about patients being prone to help their oxygenation. Could you possibly give us, imagine you're talking to an idiot, tricky I know, but imagine you need to explain to me how proning works and why we're using it in this particular disease. I think it'd be really useful for us to understand because I think we're even going to start doing this on conscious patients in the emergency department, not just on intubated patients in ICU. So how does proning work and and what's it doing to help these patients? Prone positioning has got a a very reasonable evidence base behind it for severe ARDS, adult respiratory distress syndrome. And there are sort of multiple competing theories and postulations, but essentially it redirects gas and blood to the areas of the lung whereby gas transfer or perfusion can occur at, at higher rates. So you, you get this relief of shunt in that you get better blood flow to areas of better ventilated lung units. And so the theory is that that helps gas transfer. And that follows a variety of 
mechanical ventilation benefit. So if you recruit areas of, of lung that are then more available for gas transfer, you can perhaps decrease your peak pressures and your plateau pressures that you're requiring to ventilate patients. You can decrease the fraction of inspired oxygen that you need in order to maintain adequate saturations. And all of those things can increase the nitrogen within zones alveoli, keep them recruited, keep the lung pressures low and facilitate safer uh, and more effective mechanical ventilation for periods. So when you prone someone, uh, you know, on ICU, we do it for 16 hours at a time. And what you're really doing is aiming to put them in a position whereby you can deliver safer uh, and more efficacious mechanical ventilation. You have to balance that with the risks of proning, which are, you know, pressure necrosis, the risk of tube dislodgement, uh, the risk of endobronchial tube migration, all sorts of things. So there are issues with proning. Uh, and as I said, the evidence base previously has been around ARDS with certain degrees of hypoxemia. We're now starting to use it outside of those evidence-based zones, and, and that is all quite interesting. So, Dan, you're saying that for the ventilated patients, you're doing 16 hours a day of proning. Is that 16 hours in total, or are you doing it in four-hour stints, or how does that tend to work day-to-day on the unit? At this kind of scale, you have to be quite strategic about it, actually, because it, it does take a reasonable amount of resource to turn someone prone, especially some of the patients that we're seeing with the demographic of severe illness in COVID-19, which is often be patients with a high BMI. So we tend to turn our patients prone in the, the afternoon, somewhere between 3 to 6 p.m., and we follow the kind of evidence-based ARDS strategies for proning, which usually suggest that a period in prone position for at least 16 hours. So our rationale there is we turn them prone in the late afternoon. They stay like that overnight. In the morning when we come on at 8am, uh, we look to turn them back supine and evaluate the response and see how they did. Now, in the interim period during that 16 hours, we will do different swimming positions. So we might move an arm or turn a head or, you know, move things around a little bit to try and reduce or mitigate the risk of pressure sores. But of course, you have to have airway trained staff whenever you're moving the head just to ensure that the tube doesn't become dislodged. But yeah, I suspect a lot of units will be proning for that length of time. You know, some people will look to do it whenever the physiological criteria kicked in. If if you're reflexive to it like that, it just sometimes introduces different challenges whereby somebody will need to be turned back supine at two in the morning and you're down to skeletal staff. So it it does depend a little bit on your resource, how often you're doing it uh, and how you're set up to do it. It's very difficult to do anything when someone's in the prone position. You know, usually you're you're putting them in that position and leaving them to it for 16 hours. Again, that's another reason that we we use that strategic late afternoon time to turn people prone so that when they come back at 8am, we've then got until 4pm when the majority of the day team around to change lines, to take bloods, to do echocardiography, to do bronchoscopy, you know, fiddle with filters anything we need to do really to ensure that patients getting the best possible care before they go back prone when again we try and give them a little bit of, of peace and respite. So the patients you've got in intensive care on CPAP as well as the intubated ones are they all getting proned? Yeah so proning of awake patients of conscious patients is is very different really uh, and the evidence base for that is pretty negligible as far as I can see. I, I haven't found many convincing papers, found a few case reports when I've looked but there are national documents now suggesting that that trialing proning in awake and conscious patients is feasible it's, it's not likely to be harmful and and it can be worth a go. I mean, all you're doing there really is is you're guiding someone towards positioning themselves on their front for a period of time and then perhaps helping them to go on their side. And when we prone someone on the intensive care unit who's sedated and ventilated, then as I said before, we would do it for 16 hours at a time. And I don't think anyone would appreciate it if you asked them to lie on their front for 16 hours. So, so it's a very different thing. In addition, the, the case series that I've read so far suggests that when you prone an awake patient, perhaps you get some 
benefit in the the numbers you know your pf ratio may go down or your pao2 may increase for the amount of oxygen that you're giving that patient but then when you turn them back supine that transient improvement often goes away and so i think there's a real question to be asked about proning of awake patients it, it may make the numbers better does it actually influence outcomes at all and, and how feasible is it you know how many patients are willing to cooperate with eight hour positional regimes like lying on their front lying on their side you know how many people will actually do that and how many will just tell you to go away and they'd much prefer to have a cup of tea and a rest you slipped into some icu language there which i'm not sure if i understand so you said a pf ratio in terms of trials of proning there always needs to be specific inclusion criteria for enrollment in a clinical trial and proning is designed to look at whether it's a benefit in cases of severe hypoxemia so there has to be a cut point for when you would include someone to the trial of how hypoxemic they are and it's difficult to just go off the fraction of inspired oxygen that you're giving someone because that doesn't really tell you much about how much oxygen is in their blood and it's a bit hard to just go off the amount of oxygen that's in the blood, the PaO2, because then that's not telling you how much oxygen they're on or how much PEEP they're using or any of the other mechanical ventilation measures. So most proning trials would look at the ratio of the PaO2 divided by the fraction of inspired oxygen, the FiO2. And in previous trials, they would use a cut point of 150 millimetres of mercury to enrol you in a trial whereby you would be randomised to proning or not. So that's you know a definition of severe hypoxemia, if you like. Our challenge is that we don't use millimetres of mercury very much in the UK. We tend to use kilopascals when we're measuring PaO2. PF ratio in UK language is a bit more like less than 16 is an indication to consider proning patients. You know, but that again is just where you draw an arbitrary line. You know, some people would take it lower, some would take it higher. Always there needs to be a number that triggers, I suppose, in your brain, the idea that prone positioning may help this patient. And that's really just describing how effectively the patient's taking the amount of oxygen you're putting into them and getting it into their blood and forming a ratio of those two values. A PO2 of 10 kilopascals on an FiO2 of 0.5 is going to give you a, a PF ratio of 20. So you can imagine to get a PF ratio down of, to 16, you need to have a PaO2 of more like 8 on an FiO2 of, of more like 60 or 70%. So it's just a, it's a marker of, of the trade-off between how much oxygen you're giving and how much of it is actually finding its way into the patient's blood. And one of the other physiological terms you used, just to clear up for us, is shunt. You can't really talk about shunt without talking about dead space as well. And whenever I hark back to exam times, the the way I try to remember it is that dead space is ventilation without any perfusion. Shunt is perfusion without any ventilation, really. So when we're talking about shunt, I suppose what we're talking about is alveoli that are full of fluid, fibrin exudate, you know, inflammatory material, thereby there isn't any gas in that alveolus. So you can deliver as much blood as you want to that alveoli, but you won't get any gas transfer because there isn't any good gas within it. And the more that happens in a pneumonic lung or in a lung that's full of fluid and, and exudate, the more shunts you have and the less gas transfer, the more hypoxemic patients are. Giving more and more oxygen won't solve that problem at all. If you think about dead space, then that is ventilation to the alveolus. So the alveolus is full of oxygen, it's waiting to do its job, but there's no perfusion to that particular alveolus. And that, that could be for a variety of reasons. So pulmonary embolus is an example of dead space uh, within the lung, and uh, you've got no perfusion to those areas of the lung where there's clot in the proximal circulation. And there's been lots of talk, hasn't there, about microvascular thrombus in COVID-19, meaning perhaps there are lots of lung units that just don't really have any blood supply or, or the blood supply is not as good to those areas. 
meaning that, again, you don't get gas transfer. We need to think about therapies to manage both dead space and to manage shunt when we're managing people with severe hypoxemia. What we're really saying is we need to be able to get the oxygen in and then we need to have the oxygen carrying capacity in the blood that meets that oxygen when it's in the lungs. Yes, that's right. And often those two therapies are very different. Proning may help both because a bit of postural drainage and a bit of recruitment of dorsal lung units may increase your availability of gas within the alveolus and rolling people around and and improving the perfusion to the basal or the dorsal lung may actually reduce your levels of shunt. So, you know, that's, that's one reason that people champion it. So we've got this chap, he's come up to the unit, we've trialed him on CPAP, he's not doing so well, you've measured a PF ratio, and that's looking pretty low, that's 12, 13, less than the 16 that you were looking for. And there's a decision made now that he's appropriate for invasive ventilation. Are there any other therapies that you can add into to augment it and make it easier when you go into that actual rapid sequence induction of that patient's anesthesia? It is challenging to find any therapy that's particularly effective or, or has an evidence base behind it in COVID-19, especially when someone has had a trial of non-invasive ventilation or CPAP and has failed to respond. Because the issues that we're finding are, uh, you know, initially there was a, a feeling that we should be keeping these patients dry to try and avoid capillary leak uh, and additional lung water. And actually what that means is that some people are slightly hypovolemic prior to induction of anesthesia and they have a reduced preload, which means the cardiovascular complications or the, the issues with induction of anesthesia can be exacerbated. So that's something that needs to be thought about. And, and we're using a lot of point-of-care ultrasound to try and identify what the RV and the IVC and other chambers of the heart look like prior to doing any, anything that has consequences to these patients. In addition, you know, we're finding a lot of cast formation and mucus plugging in these patients. They seem to produce a lot of sputum and they seem to, to plug off very quickly. So following rapid sequence induction, we're doing a lot of bronchoscopy, trying to hoover out these patients in order to clear their large airways to facilitate gas transfer. Some people are talking about use of pulmonary vasodilators such as nitric oxide. I mean, all of that is once you are ventilated, really. And again, there's a limited evidence base for that kind of treatment. So it is issued as a a cautious recommendation, I think, from some of the intensive care society documents, not across the board yet by any stretch. So you've decided this patient needs intubating, you've optimised preload, you've thought about their fluid balance, you go ahead and induce anesthesia, you've got them intubated, settled on a ventilator, you're doing some fancy ventilator settings, I'm guessing, what you're going to do, the proning and stuff. What really is that patient's course from now? So they've got to the stage where they got so tired they needed us to help breathe for them more than just CPAP. What proportion of those patients are going to end up being extubated? And what proportion is this really, dare I say, a futile mechanism, but is really just hoping for the best? Yeah, so... I mean, once someone is receiving mechanical ventilation, then the the initial data that's coming through from ICNARC, the Intensive Care Audit and Research Collaborative, is that once you've established on uh, advanced respiratory support, then the mortality with that is somewhere between 60 and 70%. So it's quite high. And that's what we're seeing in practice, really. Uh, We're seeing these people do not recover quickly once they've been established on mechanical ventilation. They have a fairly challenging course over a period of usually five to seven days. And I think ICNARC have have produced some kind of median days of mechanical ventilation data, which was five to six last time I looked at it. And during that period, they'll have different challenges. Some of the stuff around the different phenotypes of COVID-19 lung. Some people are talking about two different stages. Uh, you know, There's a lot of us that think it's a kind of spectrum and it's hard to dichotomize between early and late. But certainly at the start of the illness, these patients do seem to be quite compliant. Their lungs do seem to respond to increases in pressure. And um, the amount of pressure that you, you need from the ventilator doesn't seem to be quite as high 
high as it would with conventional ARDS. Later on in the disease course, their lungs do seem to get stiff and it becomes a little bit more like we would expect it to be. The compliance drops. Patients need high levels of PEEP in order to keep their alveoli recruited and not uh, plug off or decompensate. Usually what we're doing with these patients is we're assessing them day by day to try and evaluate what their compliance is, to look at the optimum PEEP strategy to keep them recruited, but to keep their plateau pressures at a reasonable level. Because as I'm sure you know, increasing amounts of pressure within the lung through mechanical ventilation cause iatrogenic problems. So they cause barotrauma, volutrauma, that causes inflammation of lung units, that causes more inflammation, more exudate, more stiffness and, and more challenging oxygenation. So we're looking at these patients every day trying to ascertain what their compliance is. You know, most people are becoming very familiar with inspiratory and expiratory holds, which are special buttons on the ventilator that allow you to measure someone's compliance at any static point in time and also allow you to measure how much auto peep is in the circuit, how much gas trapping there is and how much PEEP you need to add on top of that. We're looking daily. We're doing a lot of proding, and we've had fantastic support for that from teams of allied health professionals and, and other medical experts, so anaesthetists, physiotherapists, intensive care nurses, uh, ward nurses, lots of people kind of coming together as a group of four or five will help you with it. You know, usually proning on ICU is quite the adventure. You know, you've got to secure at least five or six people. You've got to dust off the proning policy because a lot of centres don't do it very regularly and you've got to think quite hard about it, whereas those teams are making life easy for us in that regard. And then as well as those daily evaluations, as I said before, we're doing a lot of bronchoscopy, trying to clear out secretions. And we're also seeing a really interesting specific problem with ventilator circuits and heat and moisture exchange filters. I'm sure you've seen these in the emergency department. You know, you would usually stick a, a tube between the vent and the ET tube and you would have a HME filter uh, in between those sections of tubing, which filters out bacteria and viruses and also provides some degree of heat and moisture exchange. We're seeing a huge amount of condensation in these ventilator circuits and a lot of mucus entrapment such that we are often changing the filters on a daily basis, which is a new thing for us, really. We've not really seen that before. Sometimes you get a bit of water in the circuit, but often we're kind of called to the bedside as an emergency because patients just aren't ventilating. And when you kind of track back from the tube and you do your usual initial response, then what you find is a HIV that's just completely clogged. And so you, you change that in a safer way as possible. And that solves a lot of your problems sometimes. We're also changing tubes a lot more than we ever have done. People are getting their endotracheal tube changed every three to four days because it gets this huge sediment within it and makes the lumen narrow. And then you get valves within the tube where a bit of mucus kind of flops in and obstructs the whole tube completely. And then the ventilator has to deliver higher pressures to keep airway patency. So that's all a new challenge and something we're trying to factor into our daily rounds. So just back to our physiology beginner's guide, if you like, you again mentioned auto peep and gas trapping. Very quickly, just give us a refresh on those two terms, because we'll hear these banded around. I think peep we're pretty familiar with. That's the positive end expiratory pressure that you can set on a ventilator, similar to CPAP that you'd have in a non-intubated patient. What's auto peep? PEEP is the positive end expiratory pressure in the circuit at the baseline at expiration. As far as that ventilator is concerned, how, how much pressure is there within the system, which includes the patient's lungs, of course. And you can set that to whatever you want. But if the patient has narrow airways, as we see with bronchospasm sometimes in asthmatics or patients with COPD, then what might happen is during expiration, their, their lungs may not completely empty and there may actually be some pressure left in the lungs. 
So when you set the ventilator to a peep of 10 or, or 12, if the, if the lungs themselves haven't completely emptied and there's pressure within them, the total peep in that system will be more like 14, 15 often. You know, they'll have a bit of patient-related peep. And you only really find that by doing an expiratory hold on the ventilator. Expiratory holds will tell you what the absolute pressure is at expiration, and then it will tell you, it will subtract the amount of peep that you've asked the ventilator to provide, and then it will give you the auto peep, you know, what, what the patient is doing on their own. And that's important because if you've got a patient with high high plateau pressures, meaning, you know, the pressure at the kind of middle of inspiration, or you've got a patient with high peak pressures, which is the, the highest pressure the ventilator gets to during its delivery of a breath, whatever you've told it that breath needs to be, then sometimes that could be because the ventilator is working very hard to deliver extra pressure on top of a very high peak. And if you're dialing up a peak of 10, but actually the peak within the whole system is 15 because of five of auto peep, it's likely you can reduce your iatrogenic peep and, and drop it down and, and there will still be enough in the system to reduce your peak pressures, but to keep those patient lungs recruited. So we've talked about an awful lot of physiology. We've got our patient, he's on the ventilator. We're going to see how he gets on. You're going to optimize everything you can. What I just wanted to ask you before we finish is a little bit about what it's been like on your unit to deal with all of this that you've got to think about. We see multiple media reports. Uh, we have people clapping on Thursday evenings. And and for my mind, intensive care is one of those areas that absolutely does deserve that applause. Tell us a little bit about how long you're having to spend in PPE, what levels of PPE you're in, what the unit feels like and what the mood is really from your perspective. I mean, it's a real time of uncertainty and, and difficulty for everyone, isn't it? But I, I suppose I would say that intensive care has had to change hugely at pace and at scale in order to take these patients coming through the doors who are incredibly sick. And coupled to that is the anxiety of not really understanding this disease because it's new and we don't have a huge amount of evidence to guide us. So there's additional layers of anxiety there. On top of that, you know, we're seeing colleagues and friends and healthcare professionals get equally sick with the disease and we're having to look after them on our units up and down the country. And that's hugely challenging, you know, providing clinical care to people that you know is difficult in any circumstance. Uh, and so that's an additional layer of challenge. In terms of PPE, in some ways, it's a little bit easier on intensive care because there are aerosol generating procedures happening all the time on intensive care. So all staff are in PPE all of the time whenever they're dealing with, with any of the patients there. So that kind of headache about what levels of PPE to wear and who should be in it and when to do it are all taken away immediately because everyone's in it all the time. So the only challenge then becomes how long can you physically last in PPE before you're exhausted and before you stop thinking properly. Most of us, I think, would suggest that somewhere between three and five hours, it gets really, really challenging to make decisions and your face starts to hurt and you start to get you know, irritation where your, your PPE is digging in, especially the face masks and the hoods and the visors. Yes, that's a challenge, but you know, it's a logistical challenge really rather than an emotional or a clinical challenge because it's just about rotating staff appropriately to make sure everyone's getting their breaks and to make sure no one is is trying to be a hero and staying in the hot zone too long when we know that that will impede their clinical decision making. In spite of those difficulties, there's been huge positives with their intensive care response. So, you know, lots of real coming together. We've had absolutely tremendous support locally from our anaesthetists, many of whom, you know, are highly trained in intensive care. And um, they have provided a, a continuous physical presence on our unit, which has been absolutely tremendous. Got nurses from all over the hospital, the emergency department, wards, different areas who are coming up to do ICU shifts and getting extra experience and being integrated into the team. We've got fantastic healthcare support workers helping us don, helping us doff, you know, doing lots of things that we don't want to concentrate on. So, you know, lots of coming together from the hospital, lots of advice from specialties, lots of 
positive step forwards, but it's a difficult job. You know, it's been a big change. It's been a a flurry of work. There's been a plateau where we're starting to understand more about the disease. And this is a helpful time now for us to gather information and, and to reflect, to try and move things forwards. But it's been a challenging time. I have to say, I think your three to five hours of that PPE is is incredibly optimistic. It may just relate to the fact that you're from, well, you work up north and I work down south, but having spent some shifts in it, I, two hours for me. And I think until you've had that full PPE on, and I'm not recommending that people who aren't medical go out and obtain PPE unless they need it, when, until you've had that visor and the mask and the surgical gown and all of that stuff on, and you're not allowed to touch anything, that's the one time in this whole thing where I felt actually part of it because actually there's been a lot of going on and and let's not forget this is hugely challenging but in emergency medicine we've seen this crazy difference in our activity really we have high intensity going on with a small number of patients and all of the other patients don't seem to want to visit us anymore but the one time I felt part of it is being in that PPE and for you guys doing that day in day out like I say I think I can do I'm a bit older than you Dan which is probably reflecting that but I can probably do two two and a half hours max. And then I just have to get out of it. And and to do that day in, day out, I, I have to say you have my full respect, especially when you're dealing with the life and death decisions you're you're doing and thinking about this physiology. This is hard enough on a podcast, let alone trying to remember all this stuff when you're in three layers of clothing, sweating, needing the loo, and you've not had anything to drink. Because of course, you can't actually get to your mouth while you're in PPE. So there's no refreshment at all. It's absolutely exhausting. And you have my absolute respect for that uh, you and all the team i think for those who've come into itu from outside what a thing to take on to put that on and be in an environment that's unfamiliar to you it's that group of healthcare workers and professionals i think that deserve every little bit of applause they get and frankly a free coffee is probably not enough thanks ian